1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My
0: name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And Rob and I are out this week, so we're bringing you an episode from The Vault. Uh, This is sort of part four in our series that we uh, started re-airing last week about throwing behaviors in non-human animals. But here we're getting, of course, to the emergence of throwing behaviors in humans and human ancestors. Uh, Hope you enjoy. And oh, this one originally published January 12th, 2023. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part four of our series on throwing behavior. Now, in previous parts, we focused mainly on non-human animals. We've looked at uh, alleged throwing behaviors in octopuses, in uh, in elephants, in the mongoose. Uh, we definitely had a digression about dogs with air bud in the previous episode, but also in the previous episode, We ended up talking about the evolution of the human capacity for throwing, uh, which we are particularly apt at. Humans are, are very good at throwing, especially compared to our nearest primate relatives. So like a chimpanzee may be on average three or four times stronger than a human. But a human, even without specialized training, can generally throw a lot more forcefully and a lot better than a chimpanzee can. So why are we so specialized for throwing? Well, we took a look at at, uh, some, some evolutionary hypotheses about where our capacity for throwing comes from. But there was another thing that I came across while researching this subject that I did not get into in the uh, previous episode, and I wanted to come back to it here because I found it really interesting. And this is the idea of what if the evolution of throwing was somehow a necessary precursor for the evolution of probably the most distinctly human trait, language? Hmm. So not just that humans are good at throwing and good at language, but that there is actually a a neurobiological link between the two. One comes from the other. Uh, So to look at this uh, uh, question. I wanted to refer to a paper by William D. Hopkins, Jamie L. Russell, and Jennifer A. Schaefer, published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, published in 2012, called The Neural and Cognitive Correlates of Aimed Throwing in Chimpanzees, a Magnetic Resonance Image and Behavioral Study on a Unique Form of Social Tool Use. So, um, to begin, they cover some of the same ground we did in the previous episode, uh, you know, how unusual human throwing behavior is in a way. And despite all the interesting examples we've discussed in these episodes of animals throwing things for various reasons, whether trained by humans or just doing it as part of their natural instinctual behaviors, um, the authors here argue that in general, throwing remains unsystematic, in their words, in other animals. And I think this is fair. No other animal practices uh, the kind of generalized, skillful, habitual throwing that we do, certainly not without training by humans.
1: Yeah, as we discussed in the previous episode, it goes way back in human behavior. And it's something that even today, with all our other tools and ways of doing things at a distance, we still engage in throwing. Uh, we, we, I think in the very first episode, we discussed that sort of, um, at least in my case, uh, the strange pull to need to throw a ball with my son when he was younger, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though we're not a baseball or softball family. But it was just kind of this thing that I guess was like nostalgic in the culture, but also very satisfying to do Mm -hmm. and something that even if you're not very practiced at, you can do with some or at least I found that I could do with some degree of precision um, despite being very
0: rusty at the whole softball baseball thing. I totally sympathize with you there. I mean, I, I think neither of us are really sports guys. I I don't really want rules. I don't really want teams, but I do want ball mm-hmm. or Frisbee. Frisbee, uh, just as good, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's also there's there's a lot more throwing that goes on too. like it, uh, how often do we find ourselves across the room from someone we request something. And they give it a toss. They throw it to us. And you want to be able to catch it for various reasons. Um, And then that's without even getting into the various sports that even if we don't engage in, we may watch. And the throwing of balls is often an essential part or at least one
0: aspect of a given sport. Right. Uh, But of course, apart from these uh, recreational concerns, you know, throwing has been uh, crucial to the survival of our ancestors. That seems pretty clear. And in the last episode, we talked about arguments from evolutionary anthropology that throwing was positively selected for in human ancestors. Uh, and the bodies of hominin species like Homo erectus show anatomical changes that seem to favor forceful overhand throwing Um I remember those changes? Uh, they're like changes in the shoulder and the waist and the upper arm, all of which mm-hmm. combine to allow for a more substantial wind up, sort of a pulling back of tension of the, of the biomechanical bowstring to be released uh, rapidly during the throw. And we also talked about the argument that these changes appear to coincide with evidence of meat becoming a bigger part of the diet of these hominins, showing that throwing uh, was likely useful for uh, obtaining food either through power scavenging, like driving predators away from a kill in order to take the meat for yourself, or direct hunting, uh, and either way increasing the availability of food energy. Now, one very interesting thing about the adaptation for throwing is that it implies not only changes in the muscles and the skeletal system. Of course, you know, you can see all those changes around the scapula and the shoulder blade, changes in the waist, the arm, and so forth. But it also implies changes in cognition. An animal that can throw objects sourced from the environment is showing a specialized way of thinking and not just a specialized way of moving, now, what do I mean by this? Well, as uh, one example, the authors reference a uh, a specific captive chimpanzee who came up in the last episode. Rob, you remember the, the story of Santino, the chimpanzee mm-hmm. who was in a zoo in, I believe, Sweden, was it? I believe so, yes. Yeah. R.I.P. Santino. Yeah, poor Santino. The authors write that... Santino, uh, who I guess was alive at the time this paper was written, quote, hides rocks out of sight of the care staff, waiting to reveal and throw them at approaching visitors at the most opportune time. Evidence of planning comes from the observation that Santino searches for the rocks from a moat inside the enclosure prior to the arrival of the care staff and the visitors and caches the rocks out of sight, only to pull them out when the visitors arrive. That is a crafty chimp, and that is that is forethought. Mm-hmm. Adding to this, the authors uh, uh, throw in their own observations of, of similar pre-planning behavior in chimpanzees in two other research environments, and they argue that the throwing, quote, though often agonistic in function and consequence, agonistic meaning a sort of confrontational, uh, aggressive behavior, uh, is not part of the ape's display behavior. Indeed, most instances of aimed throwing that we have observed occur without any accompanying display behaviors such as piloerection, hooting, and charging, further suggesting an element of planning on the part of the individual ape. Uh, So I think that's interesting, too, if you understand what they're saying there, that there is a sort of standard display behavior algorithm, like when an ape is doing an agonistic display when trying to be dominant and aggressive and maybe scare you off. Mm Mm-hmm. It includes all of these sub-features, like the erection meaning the bristling of body hair, hair stands on end, uh, hooting, charging back and forth, uh, all that stuff. And they say that when the apes throw stuff at people, they do it without all of these other features of a typical instinctual display. Another way that throwing is different from most other forms of tool use in apes, uh, the most commonly observed types of tool use by wild chimpanzees are all things where the tool is used to extract otherwise unreachable food, often like from a hole or enclosure of some kind, and then is eaten immediately. So examples here would be cracking of nuts with with stones, like nut cracking is an example of ape tool use, but also termite fishing with sticks, ant dipping, and so forth. All of these give rise to an immediate food reward for executing the behavior, meaning that these behaviors are subject to regular operant conditioning rules. Uh, you know, if, if a behavior leads to an immediate food reward, an animal can learn to repeat basically any arbitrary set of actions. So, you know, a chimpanzee gets delicious termites every time it, uh, of course, if it, if it dips for them, that's one thing. But maybe if it stands on one foot and gets termites every time, it may learn to stand on one foot to get the meat.
1: Yeah, and we see this reflected in, in so many um, uh, experiments involving animals over the years. You know, can can you get uh, an animal to manipulate some sort of technological gadget in order
0: to get a food reward? Yeah, pressing a button or something that would have no relevance in the natural environment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So other tool use behaviors could easily be learned and reinforced uh, through through this kind of conditioning. But throwing, as practiced by apes does not lead to an immediate food reward. In fact, it rarely, if ever, leads to a food reward at all. The authors write, quote, What appears to be the main reward for throwing is the simple ability to control or manipulate the behavior of the targeted individual, ape or human. Which, though you could consider it a goal, I mean, that is much more complicated and ambiguous than a direct food reward.
1: Yeah, because it's not like the ape in this scenario is throwing the rock, hitting the human, and then by hitting the human, they drop an apple or something. Right,
0: yeah. Yeah. Now, from here, the authors go on to discuss the the underappreciated complexity of throwing. We also talked about this at length in the previous episode. But, you know, suffice to say, forceful, precise, overhand throwing is an extremely demanding task, not only for the muscles, but for the brain, uh, requiring split-second coordination of perceptual judgments, all kinds of things. You know, how far away is the target? Is it moving in what direction and how fast? What are the physical properties of the projectile and so forth? But then the other thing is the sequential motor control. To throw an object, you have to precisely time a rapid sequence of muscular movements. And uh, other authors have previously suggested that, quote, The increased selection for neural synchrony of rapid muscular sequencing routines associated with actions such as throwing are similar to the motor programming demands of language and speech, and therefore engage similar neural systems, notably Broca's area. hmm In other words, there are similarities between what the brain is doing and what parts of the brain are being used to coordinate a throw and to process language and perform speech. And one idea that gets wrapped up in this is the the role of brain lateralization, segmenting of brain processes to one hemisphere or side of the brain or the other. So in cultures where throwing behavior has been studied, the authors say the majority of people pretty much always prefer to throw with the right hand. Uh, Studies in chimpanzees also show a bias toward right handedness for throwing. And these right hand preferences suggest left hemisphere dominance in the brain in these majorities of both populations, because when it comes to controlling the body's movements, of course, you know, the hemispheres are, are flipped. Generally, the left hemisphere links to the right hand, the right hemisphere to the left and so forth. Some researchers have pointed this out in the context of uh, the fact that the left hemisphere also contains the brain regions, notably Broca's area, that dominate the production of speech. Broca's area is also known as the motor speech area. And one researcher who has focused on this is the American neurophysiologist William H. Calvin, who was or uh, actually I think maybe still is a professor at the University of Washington at Seattle, Uh, who, observing that 89% of people prefer to throw with the right arm, Calvin uh, hypothesized that the left hemisphere's capacity for language may have actually evolved from a pre-existing adaptation for right-handed throwing. Uh, He apparently published a a book that contained this hypothesis in 1983. It was called The Throwing Madonna. Oh, didn't they adapted
1: this into the film um, A League of Their Own, right? Was
0: Madonna in that? I believe so, yeah. Oh, okay. Was she the pitcher in the movie?
1: Uh, oh, I don't remember. But, I mean, surely she threw a ball at least once. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of throwing in baseball. Yeah, you, th- you throw no matter what position you
0: are. I guess yeah. the pitcher throws the most. There's no crying in baseball, but there is throwing in baseball. There's a lot. That much I remember from the film. Okay, so Madonna was definitely throwing no matter what position she played. Um no, but it unfortunately did not become the basis of the movie as far as I know. Instead, it was a place where Calvin laid out an interesting uh, sort of story, a, a possible series of developments that could have led to the development of language via the stepping stone of uh, uh, of capacity for throwing. So it, the story goes like this. Lateralization evolved for one-handed throwing with the right hand specifically. So that parents, typically mothers, could cradle an infant on their left side and then they'd be free to throw with the right hand if they needed to. So, I mean, obviously things like this are hard to prove for sure, but that is an interesting idea because I started thinking about how I, I recently became a father. And without thinking about it at all, I pretty much always, when I hold my baby, hold her on, on the left side of, of my torso. And so mm-hmm. if she like falls asleep against me, her head is going to be on the left side of my chest. And uh, that from my point of view, which is also the side where the heartbeat is closer. I never planned it that way. That that just sort of happened. And uh, I was talking to uh, my wife and she said, yeah, most often she she's on the left side there too. So I don't know that that's kind of interesting. I mean, it could be totally unrelated, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would always scoop up on the left side as well. My son is now, I think, finally too big for me to, to do that without uh, seriously injuring myself. But yes.
0: <laughs> and I guess at a certain point, you become less desiring of the heartbeat sound that like maybe loses some of the power it has over over really young infants. Yeah, I don't
1: know. I guess it, it varies from from child to child. Depends on how big they get <laughs> and, uh, and at what point they want that distance. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: Okay, well, so it's it's hard to know for sure if the need to scoop a child and hold them on the left side of the body close to the heartbeat is the real reason driving brain lateralization. Um, I find it more compelling than some other uh, hypotheses that seem to be... Uh, on offer at the time one that cited I, I was reading a review of this book by calvin that cited a previous hypothesis that the right-handedness evolved because um men in battle i guess prehistoric battle needed to like hold a, a shield above their above their heart on the left side and i was like All right, get out of here <laughs> <laughs>
1: this this uh, discussion reminds me of a painting uh, an 1888 painting that i hadn't thought of in a bit I believe what is this? Uh, the title of this piece is Two Mothers" by uh, Leon uh, Maxime of, of Favre. Um, it's, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's F A I V R E. But it's a, a pretty uh, stunning piece in which we see this um, vision of a, of a prehistoric mother with, with very modern uh, touches to it. Uh, but she's standing here in some sort of a uh, you know a, a hide garment, and she has this heavy-looking infant. In her left arm, and then there's another child sort of hanging on to her left arm. In her right hand, she has uh, looks like some sort of a a stone weapon, uh, like a, um, a, a wooden wooden haft with a with a stone blade, some sort of like you know a primitive axe or club. Mm-hmm. And she's staring back into the shadows behind her, where there's this kind of like cave environment, and there's clearly an animal lurking there, an animal emerging from the shadows. And I think this is supposed to be the other mother, the mother that is hunting her. And I have no idea if this uh, this piece has, has any connection to what we're talking about here. But it is interesting that we do see left arm cradling children, right arm brandishing a weapon to protect those children against some threat.
0: It is a kind of beautiful painting, yeah. Yeah. Her hair is
1: perfect too. Like she's real, this mom's really got it together. Perfect hair, protecting the children,
0: ready to brain a panther with some sort of a stone weapon. Anyway, whatever the cause of the the right-hand lateralization for uh, sequential motor control in, in throwing, uh, the, the hypothesis goes on from here to suggest that sequential motor control regions that made us so good at, at Uh, Tossing a stone with one hand were eventually commandeered by selection pressure for communication and shifted to a different kind of sequential motor control, which was language production. Now, when we think of language production, we think of speech, and that that could be the case. Uh, I think Calvin argued for a transitional stage where the original language was more gesture based, like gesturing with the hands, maybe, Mm. which would have then transitioned into speech production with the mouth. Again, like many things here, uh, that's not something we know for sure. So we're in very speculative territory, but I do find this really interesting. So, again, if there's anything to this story, it would go that for some reason there is an original right-hand, left-brain motor lateralization for the majority of the population for throwing objects. Human ancestors get really good at throwing with that one hand, maybe cradling a baby in the other arm or doing something else. And then you could argue that the lateralization for precise sequential motor activity in the left brain uh, to power throwing eventually provides the neurological scaffolding for the left brain's capacity for language and speech. Uh, Now, what was the actual experiment in this uh, study? Well, it was looking at our closest primate relatives to see if they could provide any insight on what might have been going on in the brains of very distant human ancestors. So they were looking at chimpanzees. Now, again, chimpanzees don't throw nearly as well or as often as we do, but some throw sometimes. So what, if anything, is different in the brains of chimpanzees that reliably throw versus those that don't? Specifically, the authors looked at the ratio of two different types of brain tissue, white matter and gray matter, in the areas of chimpanzee brains that would be most similar to the areas of the human brain involved in motor control for throwing, and for speech. And this would be, quote, the homologue to Broca's area. Remember, again, Broca's area is involved in speech production in humans. And then they also say, as well as the motor hand area of the precentral gyrus, termed the knob, K-N-O-B. And what they found was that in both of these areas, in the chimpanzee equivalent of Broca's area and in the knob, the ratio of white matter to gray matter was higher in chimpanzees that throw versus those that don't also quote we further found that asymmetries in white matter within both brain regions were larger in the hemisphere contralateral to the chimpanzee's preferred throwing hand so what they're saying is it's it's not just that the ratio of white matter was higher in these regions on both sides of the brain it's that whichever hand the chimpanzee liked to throw with Those particular regions had a higher proportion of white matter on the opposite side of the brain. Mm. Also, they assessed the chimpanzees in this study with what is called a primate cognition test battery, or PCTB which uh, is, uh, you know, a sort of a, an SAT for, for, for chimpanzees. It's standard tests on all kinds of mental abilities, you know, uh, uh, tons of things, spatial memory, uh, causality inference, tool property recognition, gaze following, and so forth. And they were looking at, well, are there any differences between apes that throw and apes that don't throw? And out of this entire test battery, Generally not. Uh, generally, there were no cognitive differences except in one area. There was only one aptitude where there was a significant difference. And it was that researchers found chimpanzees that were more inclined to throw were also better at social communication. Hmm. So the authors write, quote, these results suggest that chimpanzees that have learned to throw have developed greater cortical connectivity uh, that's correlating with the white matter between the primary motor cortex and the Broca's area homologue. It is suggested that during hominin evolution, after the split between lines leading to chimpanzees and humans, there was intense selection on increased motor skills associated with throwing and that this potentially formed the foundation for left hemisphere specialization associated with language and speech found in modern humans. So this is another case where uh, I think this is far from proven. We would need much more robust evidence before you could endorse this specific evolutionary story as uh, as likely. But I, I find this very intriguing, and it does seem possible to me that the capacity for throwing gave rise to the capacity for language. Hmm. So ape throws the bone, the bone spins
1: around, the bone becomes a space station, <laughs> just as Kubrick uh, promised us.
0: Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh,
1: I want to get back into this idea of early humans, especially throwing stones as weapons and throwing other things as weapons. Uh, You know, as we discussed in the last episode, we, we talked about some of the ideas concerning the development of ranged weapon technology in prehistoric humans, this idea that what first begins as a way of engaging in agonistic communication could transform into just a way of physically sending a message to another species via projectile. But then eventually that begins to get into this way to manipulate their behavior at range, especially in the case of power scavenging. And ultimately, it could be used as a way to hunt prey animals. Right, And as we were actually recording that episode, my mind kept turning to these images of some sort of prehistoric warfare scenario in which some, you know, entirely too Kubricky prehistoric people were employing various weapons and in kind of prob- also probably a slightly too tabletop war game manner where you have, you know, units of bone-wielding beaters moving forward to engage in some melee attacks. And then maybe you have some units of rock throwers behind them. Um, and, you know, this this felt kind of silly in my head, maybe even a little Gary Larson-esque uh, um, in my head, a little far side. Uh, but uh, then I started looking into it more because, of course, you know, rock throwers were an important part of, 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 uh, of our history. And when you start looking into the history of not only ranged weaponry, but hand-thrown ranged weaponry, Uh, it gets pretty fascinating.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think one of the main things that's striking is rediscovering how potent to force simple thrown objects are, even in an era where where, uh, powered uh, projectile technology like bows or crossbows or even guns exist when you think of, oh, somebody's throwing rocks, there at least can be this sort of feeling
1: that it's uh, like a juvenile sort of thing, that it's primitive, that it's a a nuisance. Uh, But on the other hand, I I think most of us realize that it's also quite dangerous. Nobody wants to be hit in the head with a thrown rock. Uh, A a well-aimed thrown rock can, of course, be deadly. True. And on top of that, a volley of thrown rocks from multiple assailants, uh, Even more dangerous. And of course, we see this reflected in the use of stoning as a form of execution from ancient times through through modern times. But I didn't want to dwell so much on that because that's a more depressing subject matter. Uh, But I wanted to focus more on hand thrown stones and weapons in a hunting and warfare context. Okay. So I think for many of us, and this was me until just the other day, we tend to think of ranged weapons as this steady ascent out of the Stone Age. So sure, we threw stones at things. Then and we greatly increased our ability to strategically employ those thrown stones, but then we got why and then of course we probably got wiser about how we selected stones. Granted, but then eventually we're going to level up, right? You're going to upgrade to using something like a sling, uh, a spear, a spear thrower, uh, a bow and arrow, a crossbow, etc., all the way up through the modern era. And it's I think it's easy to think of this as a linear progression or like a video game skill tree, a situation where you could you're yelling at the screen hey don't equip the throwing rock you fool you have a spear now equip the spear yes yes video game logic per- pervades yeah. our, our thoughts in every way <laughs> yeah but of course th- this is not exactly how things pan out for a number of reasons speaking broadly in terms of just weaponry in general uh, materials are, are one factor but and, and we've discussed that on the show before uh, but another huge factor to consider is that Humans are such great natural throwers, as we've been discussing, and it's such a big part of the weapon history that there just may not be a good reason
0: to completely abandon the hand-thrown stone. Right. I mean, you, you can imagine cases where people are having great success with with just hand-thrown stones, and and why, why fix what's not broken?
1: Yeah. And then if something also becomes a part of of culture becomes a part of a martial art um, and a weapon tradition uh, then there's this added incentive to keep it around so uh, i started looking into some examples from um, polynesian weaponry and martial arts the first thing i ran across was an interesting mention in the coming of the maori uh, weapons a 1949 text by new zealand anthropologist and dr te rangi Hiroa, who lived 1877 through 1951 in discussing the prevalence for spears and clubs in Polynesian history, he also discusses the the swing as a primary ranged weapon along with the spear, and then he shares the following quote Stones were also thrown by hand, and early European voyagers have reported this form of attack more than the use of the sling. The bow and arrow, while present in some groups, was used for sport, but not as a weapon of war. In Samoa, it was used to shoot pigeons. In Hawaii, to shoot rats. And in the Society Islands, it was a chiefly sport in which archers clad in special costume shot for distance from raised stone platforms. Now, obviously, this is an older source here. But instantly reading this, you realize, well, this is true. It raises interesting possibilities about the dependability of thrown stones as weaponry, even as other technologies come online.
0: Right. So you could have the technology of a bow, but still prefer hand thrown stones for some utilities.
1: Yeah, and uh, it, the advantages of the bow, of course, are well documented. You know, n- none of this, none of this we're getting into, is going to be a statement that uh, along the lines of, well, actually, a thrown rock is better than a, a high power bow or anything like that. But um, and, and it is true that the use of the bow was widespread, not only in ancient armies, but among hunter-gatherers. But as Thomas Hewlett points out in a section on ranged weaponry in the, the book, Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World, not all hunter-gatherers used the bow and arrow. He mentions uh, Australian Aborigines as an example of a people who did not, uh, despite some of them surely being aware of the technology via contact with the Torres Strait Islanders who used bows, that uh, they were still people that... that that uh, retained the use of ranged weaponry that depended on, on hand-thrown objects. And we'll come back to the most famous uh, classification of hand-thrown objects that they used in a bit. But, but where I really uh, got fascinated with all of this was, uh, was a paper from 2011. This was published in the Journal of the Polynesian Society by Barbara Isaac and Guinaria Isaac titled Unexpected Trajectories. A History of Newwayan Throwing Stones. The authors here describe the War Stones of Nuae. New-way. Newway is an island that's um, 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers northeast of New Zealand. And when Captain James Cook visited the island in 1774, he dubbed it the the Savage Island, uh, which may have had something to do with their consumption of uh, the native banana species, which uh, I understand had like a a red peel and an orangish interior. And if uh, in the teeth or rubbed on the body might look like blood, Uh, this also clearly reflects Cook's general attitude towards indigenous peoples as well. But uh, he also certainly seemed to have encountered some difficulty in landing on New Way. Uh, It's apparently difficult to land on the island anyway due to the surrounding coral reefs. But the people of New Way were also hostile to his landing attempts. And his naturalist, the naturalist on, on this particular voyage, Anders Sparman, was injured by a thrown stone. I believe it got him in the arm. Mm hmm. The new way here, they were, uh, they were not just picking up random stones and throwing them either. Uh, this is where it gets really fascinating. They had a highly refined approach to the use of hand-thrown ranged stone weaponry. According to Isaac and Isaac, the warriors were reported at the time to each have spears on their person, to have a sling and also have a pouch of stones for throwing. But throwing stones and sling launch stones were were not uncommon among other peoples who were encountered on islands uh, from this vast region. So comparatively, there wasn't much Western commentary on these throwing stones. Uh, But the throwing stones of, of Nui, according to Isaac and Isaac, were quite singular. And much of it would come out later through indigenous recollections, the work of later anthropologists and missionaries as well as later analysis of stones that were subsequently taken off the island after Western contact.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms,
0: visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.
1: So these war stones, uh, yeah, the, the crazy thing about them is that, again, these are not just stones that were picked up or even stones that were sort of painstakingly collected in the way that one might uh, you know, scour the, the rocks uh, by a stream to find the best rocks for skipping. No, these were crafted items made
0: of, uh, I think, predominantly limestone crafted items. So you might think of this as more like an arrow or an axe head or something, but it is a stone for throwing with the hand.
1: Right, right. The, the, the people here would harvest the stone apparently from stalactites and, and stalagmites in naturally occurring caves uh, on the island and then wear them down in the, into the desired shape by working them over with other pieces of stone or with pieces of coral. So we're talking considerable manufacturing effort going into these. Uh, Again, they're they're not just uh, picked up off the ground. They're not even um, scavenged from the ground. They are manufactured from materials that are harvested. They tended to weigh around three to four pounds each, and they were largely spherical in shape. Um, they were often compared to small cannonballs by uh, by Western commentators, uh, but the difference is that they were elongated a little bit on the two opposing ends. You can look up pictures of these uh, online, and they uh, to to me, if I was to compare them to a, a naturally occurring um, object, I would say they kind of look like like well crafted stone lemons or limes. I was going to say lemon, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they have that or I guess you could almost say they don't really look like a football, but they have, I guess, a slightly football-esque shape or Mm. they remind me of certain like malformed or not malformed, but sort of slightly unrealistic toy footballs you might have seen if you were a child, uh, you know, back in the 80s or something.
0: Sorry, I was just briefly amused by the concept of a toy football. (laughs) Yeah, well...
1: (laughs) Well, you have the functional football is for serious business for the the, the sport of American football. And then you have uh, you have something that's
0: that's less serious. This is a football. This is not for playing with.
1: (laughs) So uh, you did have Western observers, though, that were figuring a lot of this out, that these war stones were indeed crafted items, that they were made out of limestone, uh, that people would harvest uh, the stone from against stalactites and stalagmites. And uh, there's some really uh, uh, interesting takes on this that are reported in this uh, this paper. Uh, In 1868, missionary Thomas Powell wrote that, quote, This fact is remarkable as an indication of thought and design natural to this people, for it is not probable that the first inhabitants brought the ideas with them, but they found this limestone in the caves, saw the use to which it might be put, and designed the shape. It is therefore original on their part. And in this particular, they anticipated the European science of the recent century. Now, they don't note what uh, he was referring to here on the European science thing. So, I'm thinking maybe airships. I'm not sure. They kind of have an airship look to them, I guess. Hmm. Now, on the the limestone front, nineteenth uh, and twentieth century anthropologists described other war stones that were sometimes used that might have been made of other materials. One of um, um, of basalt, one of coral, for example. You definitely have examples of like a black. Um, a stone of black war stone, but limestone seems to be the primary material. They were highly prized and were used exclusively for conflict. Um, and, and there was apparently a lot of conflict on the on the island. Uh, you, you know, this is before there were any Westerners even. And part of it had to do with uh, you know droughts would occur, and there was a lot of uh, skirmishing for available resources. Hmm. But they didn't hunt with them apparently. So birds were hunted with. Uh, what are referred to as bird bows in this paper, and fish were hunted with nets. So these were exclusively for dealing with human threats or perceived human threats. Warriors would carry them in bags or on belts. And if they ran out of ammo, it's mentioned that they would naturally make use of stones from the ground as well. So they weren't above, you know, reaching down and grabbing whatever was available and throwing that uh, after your special stones were extinguished. And then, of course, after a skirmish or battle, uh, you would hopefully be able to go back and pick up your, your ammo, uh, retrieve them, because uh, 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 other sources mentioned that they often, they had names, they had histories, histories of violence. And so these uh, these particular stones would kind
0: of resonate with importance to the individual who wielded it. Mm. So it it's interesting that if the stones uh are, you know, they're they're manufactured with care and they're used specifically for human conflict instead of hunting. Uh mm-hmm. I mean it makes me think about them them having I don't know some kind of special like communicative or signaling power in addition to their uh ability to hit and hurt someone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um yeah, uh, here, Here's another great quote. This one is referenced in the paper as well from anthropologist Edwin Loeb who uh, wrote the following about the yeah, the importance of the stones, the individuals. Quote, The fighting stones all had special names and they were put in a kaffa or girdle which was uh, plated like a mat. The kaffa was about six to seven inches wide and was customarily four fathoms in length. The third night before the war arrived, they wound the kafa around their stomachs and slept in this manner during the night, neither eating or drinking. So, in this paper, the the uh, uh, the authors here they they point out that um, these Nuean stones, these war stones, um, th- there were songs about them. Um, And part of uh, their importance also may have had to do with the fact that they were products of the caves, which were sacred sites with, uh, it seems like, connections to the afterlife. And, of course, this matches up with the way caves were viewed uh, by uh, peoples in other parts of the world as well. The stones were used in ambush attacks, in skirmishes, but also sometimes in fights to the death uh, would occur. But it seems like a lot of these battles Based on some of the commentaries, uh, may not have been typically that lethal. Uh, So, yeah, this does line up with this idea of communication. It's not necessarily about going out and absolutely murdering the competition, but driving them away from resources that you're looking to control. And in the paper, the authors also mostly speculate on accuracy here. And in part of this was based on accounts of other throwing techniques by other advanced stone or club throwing groups. But they speculate that high accuracy was likely within 20 yards or 18 meters, roughly. Uh, But greater distance accuracy was certainly possible and I think this makes sense when you consider the, the likely scenarios in which these stones are being used uh, so uh, yeah any kind of uh, sort of tabletop gaming scenario uh, uh, that you have in your mind should probably set aside it sounds like most of these, these encounters these battles would have involved like one individual against one, another individual or one small group against another it seems like skirmishes and small ambushes were sort of the, the typical uh, encounter context for their use
0: Hmm.
1: so anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating paper uh, it's uh, available on uh, on jSTOR if anyone wants to read more uh, they, they really get in depth about the history of it and various uh, uh, mostly Western commentators who are looking at it and also how these uh, how the use of the stones was um, uh, you know disappeared and then the stones went out uh, throughout the world and then were uh, to certain degrees brought back or studied now this was certainly the most To me, anyway, remarkable account of stone throwing I came across, uh, but not the only account of specialized throwing stones. I ran across the work of Guy uh, Stiebel uh, talking about uh, archaeology finds in Jerusalem and the accumulated weapons and ammo that they were finding. Uh, This was a, a paper that came out in 2013. This is from a chapter titled Military Equipment in a uh, a larger collection of papers titled Jerusalem Excavations in the um, Tyropian Valley. And, yeah, so so there's a there's a lot of discussion of things like things you would expect to find uh, sling stones and so forth, uh, other types of projectiles. Uh, But then there is an interesting part where he mentions uh, he, he starts talking about what may have been stones that were expressly uh, collected and even crafted for throwing. Three flint balls have a single flat face, unlike weights or grinding stones that frequently exhibit multiple flat surfaces. They were ideal for heaping on top of battlements, as modern experiments have demonstrated. In light of parallels from both Palestine and the Roman West, it appears that the use of hand-thrown stones was much
0: more prevalent than has been previously appreciated in modern scholarship." Oh, that's interesting. The single flat face. So that would be a stone that was modified or selected to have a single flat face in order to make it easier to stack in a pile. And so it wouldn't roll away. Yeah. Yeah. For use on battlements,
1: which I guess also the other side of that is not only do you not want your ammo to roll away, you don't want it to roll off the battlements <laughs> with, with, uh, you know, fatal gravity assist uh, potentially, um, if you're not meaning to drop it, um, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I'd never, i have never thought about this before. Um, I mean, I've certainly researched siege scenarios before where you know, it's, it's very obvious that if you have the advantage of battlements, there's a great deal you can do without the need for uh, the power of a bow. You can just drop things on people underneath and it was, and dropping things on your besiegers was a, was a, a, a favorite tactic. Be that you could drop rocks, you could drop uh, various burning things, oils, et cetera, uh, all manner of things. And, and again, with, with lethal intensity, uh, Uh, But this idea of of not just having stones, but stones that had been to some degree altered or manufactured or crafted in order to just stack up there. So they're ready to go, but they're also not rolling out of uh, of sight and posing a danger uh, to anyone who might just say be
0: working beneath. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.
1: Now, there are also several interesting cases, uh, probably many, many more, uh, on top of what I'm going to highlight here, of hand-thrown clubs and throwing sticks. So, you know, we've been talking about throwing rocks, but, of course, throwing sticks is just sort of the, the other side of the equation here. And you find examples of these traditions just throughout the world on various continents. Um, the throwing stick was used as a hunting tool by prehistoric peoples. And we have examples of these going back at least some 300,000 years. Uh, uh, one of the problems that, and this is something that's pointed out in a uh, paper I was looking at by Conrad et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution is that a throwing stick is generally a wooden stick. And therefore, it's not always going to survive uh, to become an artifact that can be studied and interpreted, um, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, of years later. Mm-hmm. But the practice of hunting with thrown sticks certainly survived. Uh, the ancient Egyptians retained a practice of hunting with throwing sticks, and we see this uh, commemorated uh, both in their hieroglyphics but also in, um, in art. Uh, I included a, an image for you to look at here, Joe, where you see an individual um, clearly out uh, by the waterside. There are all these birds around, and in one hand, the individual is holding up this, this throwing stick.
0: And this is sort of a um an, an end-weighted club of sorts that can be thrown,
1: yeah, yeah, and I mean we, we also see the use of this in other cultures as well. The Hopi tribes people of North America also used a type of hunting stick, sometimes referred to as a rabbit stick, named for the prey you would go after with this uh, with this tool, with this weapon. mm-hmm. Throwing clubs, throwing sticks were also used in uh, in warfare scenarios and also in uh, in, in war-related ceremonies and, uh, and symbolism. Uh, Fiji Islanders used beautiful and ceremonial throwing war clubs. Uh, these were called uh, ulas, and you can look up examples of these. Some key African traditions of throwing clubs are notable as well, including the East African Rungu, as well as the, uh, the knob carry of uh, Southern and Eastern Africa. And these were used for hunting and war, but also became highly symbolic social signifiers as well. Yeah. But I feel like the idea of the the thrown blunt weapon, the throwing club, is something that is often, uh, I guess, glossed over in in, uh, at least in the Western mindset. Uh, You know, just again, coming back as always to things like Dungeons and Dragons, where we we wrap all these fantasy scenarios around uh, the use of ranged and melee weaponry. Um, It's it's easy to dismiss the idea that, yeah, that the club also is a potential ranged weapon. Uh, Though, of course, I think Dungeons and Dragons does at least have a boomerang in it. Um, And the boomerang is probably the most famous and uh, I guess the most exceptional of the the thrown clubs uh, that, that humans have developed over the ages, the boomerang is uh, is exceptional because it's it's still essentially a thrown club that kills or injures via blunt force, but it is also crafted to spin in just uh, the right way and, and by virtue of its shape uh, to generate an aerofoil, which then. Uh, increases the distance that it can be thrown, so it's not only you know thrown, but it also begins to take on flight uh, in
0: a in a fascinating manner. Yeah, I remember being fascinated by the boomerang as as far back as when I was a little kid.
1: Yeah, and uh, according to to Thomas Hewlett, uh, we run into the wooden artifact problem again with boomerangs, but. Convincing boomerangs have been discovered as old as 10,000 years, uh, so they, they've, they've been around for quite a while. There are returning boomerangs and there are non-returning boomerangs. Um, non-returning boomerangs were primarily weapons, while returning boomerangs were, I think, more in the recreational and symbolic and mythological sphere of things, um, but could also be used, apparently, in, in hunting scenarios as some sort of a decoy uh, for, I think, birds of prey, but also as a means of frightening intended bird prey. So they weren't without um, functional uses. And there are a lot of things similar to these boomerangs that we find in other cultures as well. Like the Tamil people had a kind of non-returning boomerang of their own called a valari. And you can look up uh, various images of this as well. It has a slight boomerang shape, kind of a tusk-like shape. Mm, yeah. Now, going back to Thomas Hewlett here, he points out that, broadly speaking, the evolution of ranged weaponry was initially uh, uh, an evolution that had a lot to do with range. Thrown weapons greatly increase the range at which human beings uh, may inflict harm, but then additional throwing technologies extend that range. And this, of course, increases what we can do with them from a hunting standpoint, but also provides advantages over other human adversaries, at least under the right conditions. But I think these examples show that it's not just a matter of abandoning the use of hand-thrown projectiles. We retain the physical abilities as well as the basic skill sets. And we see this reflected in our sports as well as our weapon cultures. Hand-thrown weapon traditions clearly survived the advent of other ranged weapon technologies and in many cases retained important cultural values as well. And... There's one final wrinkle here, too, that I, I almost completely blanked on. I almost didn't have anything about this in the notes. But then I, of course, remembered, well, as we enter into the age of explosives, hand thrown weaponry remains important in the form of hand grenades. The more common variety of grenade is, of course, made to be thrown by hand, much like a throwing stone. It more or less fits in the human palm, though we also have the example of the German stick hand grenade that was used in the First and Second World Wars and I think adopted by uh, some other groups as well during this period. But as the name implies, this design features a long handle, and these were thrown end over end, much like a hunting stick or a thrown club. Now, in both cases, obviously, given that this is an item that will explode, you don't necessarily have to be as precise. It's not a situation where you have to hit somebody in the head with it or in the neck with it every time for the weapon to be uh, successful. Though I guess there would be situations where you were trying to throw said grenade into, say, a window or some sort of uh, an opening
0: in a tank, etc., well, or like in other cases we've looked at to compel behavior, to like drive people away from a particular location. Yeah, I
1: was thinking about Monty Python uh, many months back, and I of course thought of the holy hand grenade of Antioch, uh, oh. the the magical weapon that is used against the uh, the, the killer rabbit and um and i remember looking around a little bit to, like to just to see was there anything in use during the general historic uh range that we're talking about here that would have been like a, a grenade and uh, as i recall there wasn't really so i guess there is maybe a potential lag uh that there's this kind of gap uh, between the high age of stone throwing and stick throwing as a viable weapon and then the emergence of Explosives, which kind of reignites uh, the, the the need to be able to to throw precisely, or at least with some degree of precision. You don't want to throw a, a hand grenade imprecisely, uh, but we certainly see with hand grenades the like the, the need for individuals to throw these things becomes all the more important. I mean. Um, you look at images of, of, say, modern soldiers training to throw hand grenades, and there's a, a definite, like, uh, uh, form to how you do it. Uh, you know, like, there's definite training in place. So, uh, precise uh, throwing of handheld objects uh, remains
0: a seemingly important part of of the modern military scenario. You know, I didn't plan it like this, but it's interesting how this series began as us. Uh, Wanting to look at uh, examples of non-human animals throwing, and uh, and ultimately the main thing that I'm taking away from it is is the special role of throwing in in the development of human culture and human cognition.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was surprised by it as well because yeah, it was it, we we started off with the octopus, and now here we are talking about soldiers with grenades. We have to keep the grenades away from the the octopuses, by the way. Yes. Oh, uh, I should also point out, I, I didn't even get into the use of, of sharpened throwing uh, weapons, but obviously that's a, a huge part of weapon culture throughout history as well. Uh, I don't know. I guess it felt like one step uh, manufacturing or materially away from just throwing a stick or throwing a rock. So I didn't get into that, but obviously there's a lot one could additionally discuss involving hand-thrown axes, hand-thrown darts and uh, knives and so forth. So I guess different aerodynamic uh, properties come into play with at least some of those weapon designs. All right, we're going to go ahead and end it there, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have uh, thoughts, uh, feedback, uh, experience uh, on anything we've discussed here in this episode or the previous episodes regarding uh, animals throwing things, humans throwing things. Um, the uh, the the role that uh, that, that uh, being able to throw something uh, may have in the development of language, uh, and also just uh, the, the various uh, uh, weapons cultures, martial arts that have involved hand thrown objects. If you have anything to add about any of that, uh, please write in. We would love to hear from you. Just a reminder: the stuff to blow your mind is a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail, and that's that's where you can write in. And we'll. Uh, you know, discuss uh, some of the mail that comes in on Wednesdays we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode and then on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a strange film on weird house cinema.
0: Huge thanks to our audio producer J.J. Posway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future to share something interesting or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: Top Two is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.